Well, let's go. Straight to you from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome to Permit to Think. Meaningful stories and conversations from the fringe of societal norms. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a professional fisherman and host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far and near reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures and wild fish. But I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after, a quiet mind and time to think. This ride is too short, so I'm gonna start exploring the narratives of the people that have brought me here. I have been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Let's go. Our guest today is A.J. Sanders, Aaron Joel. A.J. grew up on the rolling plains of Iowa. He came to Jackson, Wyoming to ski for a season after graduating from St. John's University in Minnesota in 1996. Like many, he never left. Owing to a youth spent canoeing and fishing along the Minnesota-Canadian border, AJ began working as a paddling instructor for Rendezvous River Sports in 1997. In 99, he transitioned into a drift boat as a fly fishing guide. Today, he continues to share his passion for these watersheds in a drift boat as a guide, but is also the owner of Wyoming Angling Company, a veteran full-service outfitter steeped in the history of Jackson Hole. Winter brings him full circle, back to working where the water originates. AJ is a guide, trainer, examiner, and ski instructor at the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. Additionally, he works as a heli ski guide at Alaska Rendezvous Lodge in Valdez, Alaska. I first met AJ 20 years ago, and we have worked together directly and indirectly ever since. AJ is extremely modest, and even getting him to come on the show is a win. He is an extremely thoughtful, honest, soulful, and reflective friend who likes to fly under the radar. AJ is one of the most sought-after guides on the snow and the water in the region, who prides himself on his teachings and building relationships through his trades. Actions speak louder than words. I always value my time with AJ, and I don't seem to get enough of it. But I do today. And as always, I'm looking forward to it. AJ lives in Jackson with his wonderful wife, Tori, and their sons, Atticus and Oliver. Without further ado, please welcome AJ Sanders to the show. What's up, AJ? How you doing, Mike? I am doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, I feel like um, I should have done it a little earlier when you were just still kind of my friend. Now you're a professional <laughs> podcaster. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, in, I'm in company of greatness, I feel like. Yeah, right. I've, it's been fun to watch, hear, listen, and you're. it's great. Content's good. I love it. Well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. trying. You know? I, I think you're just settling in. It's um, getting better and better, and your rotation of guests has been very intriguing, I feel like. 
Yeah, that's an interesting part of it, right? Because you, um, many could argue that I'm probably letting it go a little too organically, but, um, yeah. you know, it's funny how it works. Some days, like I've got nothing. I mean, I've got a list of people, but yeah. um, I'll run into them and be like, that's that's who I should go after next. And then the schedules don't align. And then I'll be like, oh, I should probably do one. It's getting a little, you know, because I did set a goal yeah. of what I want to do, but getting there yeah you know thanks for uh thanks for coming how's the family everybody's good i kind of um you know you sort of take a deep breath and wait for the next whatever (laughs) pothole that's coming but um we're in a pretty good flow right now as a family everything's pretty smooth um boys seem great tori's leading the charge yeah. She's keeping us all in line and it's uh it's great. I think I just try to fill a role and take the recycling out and do, you know <laughs> try, to, try the, to participate when I can. How is the the shift? You know, I often think about when like maybe I get a night at home alone. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, this is gonna be awesome and then like after an hour I'm like, What am I doing? Yeah. Like <laughs> Yeah. Like, um, so how is the shift with, you know, part of the family um, gone for part of the time right now? Yeah. And for people listening, right? I mean, or you explain it better than me, I'm sure. Yeah. So Oliver's doing his freshman year in Park City at the winter school. High school. Um, yeah. Yep. Freshman year high school. And Tori's been down there with him basically off and on since July. He's just doing his core classes, which are the they are on a trimester program. So he's just doing his last two trimesters, which has been four months. So he's kind of getting a year of content in a short amount of time. So it's been, it's been nice, you know, these spaces kind of in our togetherness, I think coming out of the pandemic and having that intense, like (laughs) togetherness with two, one preteener and a teenager. It was, it was kind of tough, like just, bouncing off each other in the house all the time and so it's been quiet like to answer your question it's i'm you know getting to read a book and things aren't as chaotic as when everybody's around but it's been nice it it i think everybody's finding some space to kind of grow on their own oddly like yeah which is important yeah as much as i was kind of put my foot down not put my foot down but I was the one kind of dragging my feet about the whole thing. Never imagined we'd kind of have to split up the family for some time, but it's been great. Oliver's knocking it out of the park. He's on this math track that, you know, he's got a wonderful math teacher that's, he's got three kids in his math class and he's just, you know, it's fun to watch him kind of grow and his confidence. And so, that's cool. Do the do the bros miss it? I mean, they have to. That has to be a weird I th- thing. I think they do oddly in a way. Like I think you know, I've heard them speak nicer to each other lately and kind of <laughs> ask about each other a little more. And but yeah. I think, uh, yeah, oddly, the, the space has maybe brought everybody together in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. Uh, and so I know you. I've asked you this, but so with a condensed school year. Right. Yeah. Then school ends in November, I think you told me. Yep. And then is there any schoolwork or is it just 
Well, he'll he'll be back here. He's skiing with the club here still, and um, Tori's going to saddle him with some online school, which the winter school is going to let him transfer all those credits. So okay, it's looking like he'll be able to just attend the final two trimesters again next year. So just four months. So um, the program he's in is more of like a jump start. Well, it's it's just a real condensed academic calendar okay for winter sports athletes i guess really is what it is hmm. um kids whose winter schedules are so insane with travel and training and so i think for us it wasn't so much we're doing this because he's a ski racer it's just more he needs to be in a classroom with a pencil and a teacher and the school system here with their revolving calendar you know they yeah. have this, they change every day of the week <clears throat> These kids that get out to train in the middle of the day, they miss a lot of time. They miss a lot of core content. They miss yeah. tests. They miss so. And Oliver's the type of kid is doesn't like feeling behind or missed. And so even in eighth grade, it was tough for him. Adds adds a little anxiety yeah. to the yeah yeah. So Tori, kind of did her research and looked at all the options possible and you know, this really popped up, kind of fell in our lap and it's, it's been great. That's awesome. Yeah. Really. It's uh yeah, it's, it's wild to think about from where I sit, right? Cause right now it is everyone still on top of each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on a nightly basis, but yeah. Um, well, I've been, I've been dying to ask you cause it's, <laughs> you know, everyone that's fished with you as friends, you know, has kind of encouraged you to maybe go for on a saltwater fishing trip. And uh, I'm wildly interested to get to get your reactions to a place that I'm familiar with. So yeah. it's it's kind of it's really cool. I, and in fact, when I heard, you, you know, you were going down, I was thinking, I'm like, well, I wonder what happened today. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I, I did think about I thought about you daily, often out there on the flats and kind of wonder what Mike would be doing right now, thinking right now. But, you know, it was amazing. And the more distance I kind of have after returning, I think we got home Monday night, Tuesday night, but um, a couple of days now settling in. and it, it just kind of is growing in my mind of, appreci you know, appreciating what it was. Sure. I think... To be fair, I talked with a friend of mine about this down there. I went, I went into it with pretty high expectations, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I don't really know what those expectations were, I think, in retrospect. But I, you know, so many YouTube videos, talking to you all these years and hearing the stories. And I think the first couple of days I had to kind of readjust what I think my impressions and uh, assumptions were mm -hmm. and as I was doing that things started happening that were just cool and amazing and like okay I get it I get it I get it mm -hmm. you know so I think that was probably the best part of the whole week is just figuring out for myself of like how I fit into this and what I can take away from it yeah you know so <laughs> How was the weather? And and sorry for everyone listening. So AJ's first saltwater trip was down to Punta Allen, Mexico. Yeah, 
real real saltwater trip i guess i've fished in florida a bit on the flats boats but but yeah i should qualify that so is that the first time you spent like a week yeah okay 100 percent um and yeah so punta allen ascension bay good good weather i mean yeah first first day we kind of had some rain um you know they picked us up in tulum and we fished the lagoon all the way in to the lodge and it was kind of a little rainy overcast, but I thought we had pretty decent fishing actually mm-hmm. caught some tarpon and I was like, Oh, this is cool. Yeah. Even, even on cloudy days. And so, and then day two started out sunny, kind of a little rain halfway through the day. And then the last three, four days were fantastic. So sunny, sunny. Yeah. And what did you, uh, so tarpon was the first, was that your first experience with tarpon? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, I think I know exactly. Where, little round island back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one of many mangrove yeah. islands. Like I think I've been here before. And like, no, I definitely have not. But um, yeah, um, got to see them rolling, which was a treat. And yeah, you know, the water it had rained a lot. They have had weather, so the water was up in the lagoon, especially and a little milky and murky. So the first few fish, I never even saw the take, but casting to rolling fish you kind of knew where they were yeah so that was cool um yeah it was and did you guys go bone fishing or or permit fishing or kind of all of it all of it um, cool i think you know the guides sort of asked as you're motoring out what do you want and you know, permit some days for who I was fishing with. It kind of depended on their... <laughs> it's always such an in- yeah, interesting... <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't really have a hit list, I guess. Those guys, some of them did. You know, they wanted a target permit. And I'm like, eh, you know, I'm just happy to catch fish. Bonefish sort of obviously kind of got a little old after a while. But yeah, they fill the voids, I found, nicely. Yeah, well, you know. there too. It's different. Yeah. Um, They're not as big. Yeah, and also it's, um, you know, it, it's not as much hunting there, I guess I would say. I mean, they kind of know where, right, where to go yeah. <laughs> if you want to catch a bonefish. There's good good chance. But did you, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that about the expectations. The funny thing that I think is that no one really ever talks about the meditative component of that mm-hmm. endeavor, mm-hmm. Um, which ends up being... <laughs> Like 90, 90% of, you know, you're staring at the ocean. Yeah. Um, and I think it took me a long time to recognize that and why it, that's addicting to me. Yeah. But did you... That, I, was, I was truly surprised, I think, most by the fatigue factor of the, the mental aspect yeah. of just staring and looking and staring. Because, you know, we had fished together and a lot of times we'd stand up on the bow together and both every, you know, even when I'm not fishing or angling, <clears throat> helping your partner look for fish too. And yeah, and it's kind of just intense and, and, and fun. I mean, that's the, the great part about it, I guess. And it, it, uh, it was a lot. It, like you said, I mean, it's a mindless time for sure. Like you're so fixated and concentrated. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, you're trying to look for fish and have a conversation at the same time with your buddy. And you're like, what am I, I can't remember the last five sentences I said, what, what were we talking about? <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, it was. It's it hard was, to do both. I it, mean, it, it really it is. is. Yeah, I, I you know like the first few hours in the drift boat, you're so fixated on finding fish, figuring it out, and your guests are just going on and on about their kids and their job, and you're like, <laughs> I, I'm not listening. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to figure, trying to figure the puzzle out. I'm trying here. to figure this puzzle out today, but you know it 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 was great um, that way, and the the meditative quality of it for sure, as you said, was therapeutic in a way you know oddly to use that word but it was good for me to be away and yeah be humbled and patient i think part of the reason i was so excited for you is because i i've you know you you often wonder why why did i end up doing this or that or in life in general and um you know looking at at the saltwater fishing and stages as I'm sure you can relate to trout fishing and backcountry skiing, skiing in general, right? I mean, it's that is the that is the wondrous stage mm-hmm. because anything is a possibility, mm-hmm. and then you do it for 20 years, and you get up and you look at the you know what might be coming, and everything's a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people you know people ask me like, well, what do you think? You know, should I? Should I, should I paint this claw red? It's like absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. Because you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, miss something. Like you don't want to tamper that mm-hmm. stage because, you know, it's. I'm sure it's. You get up and you've looked at the weather and you go out to the mountain. And you know what you're gonna mm-hmm. ski for the guy who just got off the plane and hadn't seen the mountain before. Mm-hmm. He's probably yeah. just stoked, you know, beyond belief. But yeah. it's, um, could you see the fish pretty well? I, I definitely, as the water cleared up and the weather, the sun came out, I definitely got better at it. Um, not, I, I, I'm by no means saying <laughs> I had great eyes, but um, it started to make sense. Direction of travel was at first, like, okay, I see the fish, but which way is it facing? Mm-hmm. You know, um, well, that's that's an advanced uh... so, well sorting that out and you know mm-hmm. putting the pieces of it together was really intriguing the the casting the f- way the fly lands the way the leader unfolds you know even you can send it out there 60 feet but if it sort of piles up at the end what's then you, you know yeah. <laughs> you're moving the fly to but you know we don't fish like that around here we don't cast like that yeah but getting to do that for a week was a lot of fun for me. The casting was as much as a part of it and enjoyable as catching the fish. Honestly. Yeah. Did you get to spend any uh, time in the town? Yeah, we walked down one night. Um, and Tommy and Steiny and I kind of toured around town, walked around in blocks and looked at the soccer pitch and the baseball diamond. Had and, some tough games out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> took a picture team photo in front of the permit and yeah it was great it was i I told tori i was like i can't come down here and sit in the lodge all day i gotta see what it's all about and yeah you know just mingling with the people and our staff even at the lodge and the guides it's just fun to kind of get a sense of what they think do live yeah life you know so different is it do you find any like similarities or did it pop into your head between 
Like when you were permit fishing to elk hunting? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I kind of only, you know, buck fever when you, when you see it, <laughs> you get excited, but I only really got that once the last day I was fishing with Tommy and, um, got to cast to a big tarpon, you know, mm-hmm. Jorge, our guide said it was a migratory tarpon. He said it was over a hundred pounds, biggest fish I've casted fish to in my life. For sure. sure. And, um, that was exciting for the first few, you know, I got a little bit, a little, little knees, knees <laughs> <Yeah. shaking. laughs> a little bit, my hands too. I was like, wow, that's weird. But, um, yeah, we went through seven fly patterns. Couldn't get him to eat. It was, oh, really? yeah, it was maybe someone was already bothering him. Yeah. I don't know. It was interesting. It was cool. It was up in the lagoon in this tiny little back bay. And, um, it was fun. Tommy was switching flies for me look up to Jorge and hold up a pattern and he'd be like, yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I've never even changed flies seven times on a trout, you yeah. know? Like, <laughs> but we had two 10 weights. It was, it was kind of a fire drill, but it was fun. Worked it, worked on him for quite a while, but would you, uh, would you do it again? Oh yeah. I think you for would. sure. Yep. Okay. That's, that's a good sign. Yeah. I think, um, just the group too. I mean, so fun to be because you were pretty much with your your company right? yeah yeah pretty much our you know i think there was eight of us total um which is close to everybody mm-hmm. um even the ones that didn't go this year are talking and insisting about trying to go next year so that's great yeah i think kind of a cool way to wrap up the season yeah it's a good time of year for me too that not, nothing's too crazy busy with ski season coming down the pipe, but did you, um, did you get to elk hunt this fall? Yeah. So we were supposed to go fishing. I think that week Oliver came home, ended up coming home for a few oh, days. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, he was home for 12 hours and <laughs> <laughs> hands were bloody. <laughs> made it, made it happen. Yeah. Really? It was, yeah. It was a wonderful shot. It was really great moment for sure. So, and that was his first? Um, that was his second. Elk. Second. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, you got to, someone's got to, <laughs> I got to get going. <laughs> He's trying to keep pace with his brother. I think his brother, the three or four now already. So really? Yeah. That's pretty. Uh, and do you, are you pretty much at this point going with them? Oh yeah. I haven't pulled the trigger and well, Attica started hunting when he was 12. So that's been five years now. But and how much time did you put it? This is a selfish question. How, sure, much, yeah. how much time did you put in with Atticus before? Well, we would shoot a lot. Okay. Like, and at, what were you shooting with him then? It, well, I mean, it started with my dad and shooting 22s and shotguns. Mm-hmm. And, and then probably when he was 11, we started shooting the rifle, the bigger caliber. Two, they shoot 270s. Um, mm-hmm. And I was really pretty insistent about the mileage there of like, and, um, we, you know, boxes and boxes to yeah. just get comfortable and not miss, you know, wounding an animal and being, having that happen to a kid, especially I think is tough. Yeah. So I wanted them to be confident with the shooting first and, and then a really good friend of our family's 
um, Willie Watsabaugh is our neighbor, and he and his wife are godparents to our boys, and Willie's born and raised and has been hunting elk and guiding elk hunters for his whole life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so good neighbor, great, <laughs> great neighbor, great friend, big part of the boys' lives. Um, so when Atticus was 12, old enough to hunt, we'd, just, we'd go with Willie and I think Atticus harvested his first elk five days after his 12th birthday. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I need, I got some work to do there. That's it's, <laughs> it's just a fun process. Just like, you know, the comparison to saltwater fly fishing, it's the same thing. Like you said, you're just waiting and being patient and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Calming yourself enough to make it happen. Yeah. All those things just put you in beautiful spots. Yeah. I mean, it's just sunrises, the time in the mountains. It's yeah. It's honestly probably one of my favorite things I've done with the boys. That's good to know. Yeah. Compared to even the, the boundary water trips. Yeah. Those are special too. Um, special for Tori and I both because we spent so much time up there as kids Mm -hmm. in such a beautiful, amazing place. So those trips were great too. Um, being in that environment, being in that place. And And how how long would, when you, when you did those trips, I'm I'm sure you've told me in the past, but this is like a, all canoes, right? Four or five day just disappearing. Yep. So Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, it's on the Canadian border. It's over a million acres of, it's called Canoe Area Wilderness. So okay, so no... No no motorized travel. Um, you canoe from lake to lake. It's these series of just glaciated lakes <clears throat> that are all inter- interconnected through portages, and um, you kind of pick a route you pick an entry point and once you're in you can kind of go wherever you want mm-hmm. um you have to camp at designated sites there's a fire pit great um and then you just kind of choose your own adventure where you want to go and that's great fishing's a ton of fun the the loons the wildlife the the peace and kind of tranquility of it all it's it's great so yeah i have fond memories of it as a kid with my family my mom and dad and the boys getting to do it with them was pretty great that's awesome yeah well that that's a good transition to uh to growing up in iowa and um so you obviously did that you you guys would make that trek growing up yeah quite a bit you know both my parents were educators. My mom was an art teacher in the public school system, and my dad worked at a small college in my hometown. So they kind of had their summers free, and we would we'd take off. You know, it was just me and the dog and load up the camper. I had a little 14-foot pull-behind camper and travel around. And, yeah, at least a couple trips to Boundary Waters a year. Um, you know, I think my dad always kind of fancied himself a buckskinner, voyager. Sure. <laughs> you know. I can see it. He, I... he shot black powder. You know, I think he just, I, I know if he he read the Jack London book, A Call of the Wild, when he was a kid. And I think it was pivotal for him. Literally the call of the wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it really, you know, he's just loved being outside every chance he could get. So that was impressed upon me early. And then 
yeah, those canoe trips and fishing and camping up there or just being on the water. I've always, I always found it, you know, therapeutic and just floating and yeah. traveling with a paddle. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah. I need to, uh, I need to experience, I mean, I did a tiny bit as a young kid, but yeah, um, that sounds like a, a pretty cool trip to maybe pack up the truck and go. Yeah. You should go see it at some point. It's an amazing place. Yeah. And so growing up in Iowa, I mean, how, how big was the town? Um, Fort Dodge, probably when I was there going through high school, I think probably 22, 23,000 people. Okay. So not, not terribly small, but not, not super small. I, Almost I, similar to probably where we are now. Yeah, but smaller in, <laughs> <laughs> you know, smaller in scope and landscape. Yeah, yeah, and the, you know, simple. I guess in a way, not to. Be, There's nothing wrong with simple. Yeah, not to be demeaning about it, but I perfectly appreciated my childhood, detasseling corn and hunting pheasants and playing baseball. You know, it just yeah. was like easy. Kind of, um, and my parents were keen enough on seeing the world. We traveled enough and got out and it wasn't like they were country bumpkins by any means. They're both kind of Chicago kids to, mm-hmm. to begin with. And so we, we did a fair amount of traveling. So I knew there was always more, more out there Yeah, and I just kind of wanted to see it, but not too many people left the town. Yeah. <laughs> I, I go see my dad now and it's like, oh yeah, you're still here doing the same thing, but nice to see you. It's great. And, um, so baseball, hockey, I know, mm-hmm. right. The, yep. Those throughout yep. school. And then, um, the farming aspect of it, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, cause I always thought about that. I mean, that, that has been, I mean, um, that was through your uncle. Is that Fam- just dear family friends? So like, okay. Ever since I was a kid, this family who farmed just outside Fort Dodge were wonderful friends to my mom and dad and I, and went to the same church together and just were kind of grew up being involved in their lives and we'd go out to their farm and see it. And the summer after I graduated from college, I went home. Well, actually I was in Duluth, Minnesota for the summer trying to be as close to the boundary waters and North shore as I could and came home that fall. I was home for about a month because I knew I was moving here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that was 97. So you had already spent a winter out? Nope. 96. Sorry. Okay. So I graduated in spring of 96. How did you know you were coming out here? I just, you know, I, after school, after graduation, I just, I, I just knew that I wasn't willing to stay there, to have an internship or go get a job. Or I was intending on going to graduate school and has applied to a few schools and mildly interested. I think more of it was just to kind of keep my parents <laughs> <laughs> thinking that I had some sort of a plan. Uh, I know that feeling. But, um, yeah, I was home for a month and ran into the C Corps at church and they said, well, you're home. You should come out and help us with harvest and ended up working with them for 
four or five weeks before I moved here and it's kind of great. Really enjoyed it. And then moved out here kind of about this time of year, 1996. But what, what was, what drove, like, how did you know you were coming here Um, or did you not? No, I did. That's a good question. I think, so I'd been here to ski a a couple of times in college and been here a bunch in the summer with my mom and dad, as I said, with the dog and the travel camper and i just something about wyoming always resonated with me gotcha completely you know just the place and the 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 expanse the all of it and i just always liked it you know i'd skied in colorado and montana and and it's just like yeah jackson just seems a little bit cooler (laughs) so you had skied quite a bit um not a ton growing up in iowa but i mean like family trips nope no my parents didn't ski um my dad has a terrible knee from an injury in the military so him getting on skis was not even an option um my mom yeah just wasn't part of there yeah but um so how did you do it then it was a church trip to minnesota (laughs) and um i thought this is great i was playing hockey at the time Mm -hmm. so it kind of made sense to me similar movement patterns and then um fell in with some friends in minnesota who were into skiing quite a bit because in the minnesota region minneapolis st paul there's quite a number of ski resorts actually resorts losing using the term loosely but (laughs) um there's this pretty good ski culture there yeah so um fell into this group and kind of like to ski and came out here spring break freshman year gotcha and uh just was like that place is it that's all that's all she wrote yeah yeah so um upon graduating a good friend of mine i was like i think i'm gonna move to jackson and he's like oh i have a friend who's out there i worked with him togety mountain lodge one summer Mm -hmm. and um i think he's still out there so i had like a random number scribbled on a piece of paper and literally drove into town and called him <laughs> called him on a, on a payphone and he's like yeah you can stay with me what a novel idea payphone yeah right <laughs> exactly i had everything i owned in the 1984 zuzu trooper oh, four it ran forever right four cylinder can't believe it got me here but yeah so it was kind of on a whim but um it was a great choice. No regrets. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And the back to the farming part of it. So when you did the first fall harvest, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that kept up for years. Yeah. Um, at least, well, even when the boys were little, I kind of made a huge effort to get them back there to see where their cornflakes come from and <laughs> just to see it. Um, so probably 15 years all in said and done. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I got a job teaching skiing that very first winter. And then when winter came to an end, I was like, well, what should I do now? And it's like, Oh, maybe we'll just go home and help with planting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that turned into a seasonal cycle. And, and what was, were you, what, what was the harvest? 
Corn and soybeans. Corn and soybeans. So you yeah. would harvest and then seed? Harvest in the fall. Yeah. And then in the spring it's the planting season. Yeah. Okay. It's not like uh it's not like you do it it's not a one time Right. Yeah. No. Um and they you there's a crop rotation that happens, you know, soybeans fix their nitrogen from the soil. Where corn you need to have the nitrogen, so it every field gets flipped season to season based on what crop was in there the prior season so yeah you miss you miss that at all um there's a simplicity to it there's a you know your brain works in a different way just the logistics of it all if i you know combine this direction am i going to be able to unload and get the truck where's the truck going to park and i mean the logistics of it were a lot of fun for me in yeah. my mind. I got my class A CDL. I mean, driving trucks and combines. It was a lot of fun for twenty year old kids, you know. But yeah, um, probably slept well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Long long days. Um, I got to spend some time with some salt of the earth people. Yeah, it was uh, it was good for me at that age. You know, where you think he kind of got the tiger by the tail and <laughs> just to see what hard work looks like yeah um and to see what you know, things break there's there's problems mechanically and just navigating that stuff without emotion yeah just dealing let's fix it sure on. i think that was great for a young kid yeah and um and you, you, you stopped that about what year? Like that was um, when the kids were young. So yeah, Tori and I were married in 03. Atticus was born in 2005. So yeah, it was, you know, Oliver came probably like 08 or 09, I'm guessing. Gotcha. Kinda. I, I love that part. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I mean, there was some, some fields, you know growing up in New Jersey unbeknownst to most people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? But um I don't know. There's there's something uh there's something very romantic, I guess I would say about that. I I enjoyed it too, very very much, and it probably made me patient in a way that I, it just I wasn't seeking adventure, I guess at that time. Sure. I was I was even heli ski guiding and getting off the airplane and going home and farming and it was very grounding and humbling and yeah you know, what a, like, what a extreme I yeah mean. yeah <laughs> like I remember literally one time you know guiding finishing up the day of guiding getting on the airplane in Valdez Anchorage red eye flight home Des Moines my dad picked me up and I was in the combine like that evening. Yeah, you know, going from an A star to <laughs> Case International, in twenty four hours that is wild. Yeah, it was it was great. Kept me level for sure. Yeah, what a level set. Yeah. Um, well, I I often think about you know when we first met, um, and I I think we had met beforehand, but it was a heavy moment. Um, when I came to see you post accident. Yeah, that was, um, that was 
that was 05. So, I mean, we'd known so we each had, other. We were, I, I mean. Cross paths. I we, feel no, like. No, we were, we spent some time, time together. We met, I remember exactly when it was, Pete Moss building, meeting. Yeah, what a, your, okay. your first, it was your introduction to Worldcast. It was your sort of opening, <laughs> right? <laughs> Here it is. It's like Tortorella and the Flyers. <laughs> <laughs> great similar i really remember it like i remember kind of like pulling my shoulders back and like whoa okay new sheriff is in town because <laughs> it was it was a little loose those first few years and um we didn't know what we're doing yeah i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> but you faked it well we we all stepped in line pretty quick you know but i think what was that oh, it had to be oh two yeah, it, I move. I moved here. Oh one. So yeah, um, yeah. It's I funny. Think, that's another moment, right? Everyone remembers when they. I think it was the spring of that, oh two. But, and you know, probably to your point, we were fairly. Just we worked together. We were trying to navigate each other's place of origin. And <laughs> yeah, made each other tick, but instant amount of respect on my end, of you and what you were trying to accomplish with our group and, and me specifically. And yeah. And then I think it really settled in after that accident when you came to the house. Yeah. And, and I, if you don't want to talk about the accident, I nope, totally, totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Cause that, that, I don't know. It's such a, um, it's heavy. And I know that at the time, I don't think I recognized the gravity of it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, because, I don't know, I think about it often, right? Just because I feel like, yes, we, we, we knew each other, friendly, working together, mm -hmm. but I feel like there was a bond that mm -hmm. happened there. And then I reflect upon that often. And especially... It really sunk in. I don't think I ever told you this, but one, one, one summer we were crossing paths and you, I was like, what have you been up to? And you, you said very nonchalantly, oh, I, I, um, I just went and, you know, got my ski back. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, and I think we probably kept walking and I was like, what, what the fuck does that mean? And yeah. I was like, oh my God, that's, yeah. um, so, I mean, we don't have, I mean, it was, you were caught in an avalanche, mm -hmm. right? While yeah. guiding. Yep. And at the village, in, at, not in Alaska, not in Alaska. Yep. So it was January. Oh, oh five was the year Atticus was born. And, um, <clears throat> Tori was away at graduate school. She went to the university for peace in Costa Rica. So she was gone. It was just me and the dog at home and, you know, I was kind of living a great life. Like it, I'd been guiding in Alaska by that point for, geez, I guess almost five years at that time. And was really feeling good about my skill set and like the way things were going, um, up there and down here even. And it was kind of an odd day. It hadn't snowed in a number of days. But uh, it'd been cold, and we had a big wind event, super, super duper, lots of miles of wind is how they measure it. 
and I didn't think much. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, they just sort of take a duration of time and sort of average wind speed, mm-hmm. and they function that into, we call it miles of wind. Okay. Overnight. And that number kind of gives you an indication of like, wow, there's slabs or right exactly if there's enough snow available for transport if there's enough snow that can get moved around it can be significant but the direction is important too to our range there what we guide so it was kind of a southwesterly wind Mm -hmm. which always to me doesn't pose a lot of problems doesn't raise the hackles right exactly so i was um guiding this journalist actually Anna Olson who was a communications director at the time for the village kind of set me up with him he was going to write an article <laughs> about backcountry skiing at Jackson Hole and he did but um we kind of only had a short amount of time and I was kind of in a hurry and I was sort of pushing the pace and not maybe paying attention to all the clues mm-hmm. but um what happened is this kind I of... I find that hard to believe, by the way, too. For you, me? You, well, it was one of the questions I wrote down. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'll ask you that later, but your attention to detail is pretty yeah. pretty high. Yeah. But, so yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, I think, you know, on that note, as I said initially, you know, I think I was probably a little overconfident because okay. things were going well for me in that job. Mm-hmm. Um. I was like, ah, yeah, this is fine. It's manageable. But what had happened is this one in particular is no name Canyon. There's this sort of South facing aspect that it just collected. It's like a little concavity collected the snow that was moving around with all the wind and it presented itself like a big blister. Mm -hmm. So kind of unrecognizable. And I was kind of traversing across this slope to get to some better snow because south-facing slopes were scoured, kind of wind-hammered, you know, not worthy of skiing. So we were trying to get to a little better snow. And we kind of move in stages. And I said, wait here, I'm going to make this next traverse. Got about halfway across and thing fractured above me. Hard slab because of the wind and really odd um avalanche profile like had a big crown but no flank Mm -hmm. kind of back to the blister idea and it accelerated like snot on a doorknob i mean it i was going faster than i've ever gone instantly and so trying to stay on my feet trying to ski away and uh led me into just a pod of trees Mm -hmm. at a really high rate of speed so, uh, did you, were you trying to steer or is that, or is it just so fast? There's no, no. So, I mean, backing up a little bit, I'd been slid in Alaska. Okay. That was another, that was my <laughs> next question. A couple times prior actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, to be honest, those one significant slide and having that experience, I think totally saved my life. Um, just from having the knowledge of like how the snow is going to behave and what I think my best exit strategy is, um, staying on your feet as long as possible. But, uh, yeah, I just got going super fast and couldn't escape the tree Island that I headed. Towards. So it wasn't as if you were, you were trying to get to the trees. Well, I was 
the avalanche path was essentially kind of moving to the right skiers, right a little bit. And I was just trying to go skiers left. Okay. Yeah. Just trying to at least stay on your feet. It sounds like I don't know nothing about. Yep. Yep. And then, I mean, I've got avalanche one oh one, right? I mean, the, yeah, it's a the basic course, but, um, and then get left, get left. Yeah. <clears throat> and then those trees stopped my progress. And I threw my feet out in front of me and just hit basis first on in that tree, in that tree island. Yeah. And it was, <clears throat> I mean, that was, you threw your feet up yeah. on purpose mm -hmm. and then ruined your feet. Legs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was, yeah, that didn't really settle in until minutes later. Um, I was buried. Um, you were? Mm-hmm. I did not know that part. Head downhill, which is always the worst. And I knew it right away. Kind of coughed up snow. But I had, I could see daylight. Good. So I, know I, I knew I wasn't very deep. Mm -hmm. And that kind of allowed me to collect myself for a minute and kind of get my breathing under control. So, and I knew the fellow I was guiding was in a safe spot. I knew he wasn't involved. And he was actually a pretty savvy backcountry skier, mm -hmm. had a pretty good skill set. And I knew he'd eventually be able to find me. Um, so I waited and waited and fi finally I could hear his transceiver hmm. searching. And he got close enough. I could hear the transceiver going faster and faster as you get closer. And I kind of start to try to yell. And I think eventually he did hear me. Got me dug out, got my head dug out. I was able to get to my radio and just called it in on our guide channel. And Dave Miller, who was the head guide at the village for a long time, was kind of a canyon behind me, top of Four Pines, basically. And then, so he heard me and we didn't have good, it was kind of line of sight communications, mm -hmm. calm. So he was able to relay to Mountain Station, top of the tram. And Kent McBride was at the top of the tram, grabbed an O2 pack, and I think set some sort of human speed record for, <laughs> it, it, I mean, I heard him on the radio, and next thing you knew, he was there with, with O2. Like, I don't know how he did it. That's amazing. Super fast, superhuman. But um, anyway, Miller got to me, kind of started digging me out, and I was like, I think my right ski is on. Yeah. <laughs> and he got to my right boot finally. And he's like, yeah, no, your ski's not there, but your foot's at a weird <laughs> angle. Yeah. So that one, I knew that one was kind of messed up. But yeah, um, Search and Rescue got there with the aircraft pretty quick. Jen Sparks, she, I just saw her in the Denver airport a couple of days ago. <laughs> it's always funny when we see each other, but she, they packaged me up and flew me to the hospital. It's heavy. Yeah, so I broke my right tip fib in many places. I had like 25 screws and two plates in that leg. Still bother you or no? You know, not so much. Weather change kind of, but skiing and not not really, but... After a few days in the hospital, they tried to get me up to walk around and I tried to put weight on my left foot and I was like, I can't stand on that, that, that leg. And they're like, oh, 
So were you being treated in Salt Lake? No, it was here. Here, okay. But they x-rayed the left leg and that one was broken too. So another surgery, more time. I ended up being in the hospital for, I think it was like eight or nine days. Wow, that's a long time. Tori came home from Costa Rica. Um, and day I got home from the hospital, we found out we were pregnant. Tori was pregnant with Atticus. No way. So that was... You know, you're speaking to the sort of heavy nature of it. It That was like, I don't even know if I'm going to walk again. I'm going to be a dad. Like, yeah, super pivotal time of evaluating what priorities might be. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because when I reflect upon, you know, like, and for, you know, everyone listening, AJ and I had a meeting, and I had... I was so naive to the gravity of the situation um, that I look back on that. I mean, I don't know so much like, you know, um, just too confident, I guess, in, in not evaluating what you were, the whole situation. I didn't know enough, right? Like I didn't yeah. know. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's strange because, you know, I've, I almost like didn't want to ask you the details. It's taken this long, right? Because I didn't almost want to ask you the details because it's like, well, you don't want to ask someone who's just yeah. been through something that heavy. I think I remember saying to you that day, sitting in the living room, it's like, Mike, I don't know if I want to ask people what they want on their sandwich for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't... And, Everything came into question, really. Oh, as it should. And I, mean, uh, I think that's the look on your face as you're just describing of like, what, what, <laughs> what do you mean? And it was hard to navigate my own sort of feelings of inadequacy and under performance and, you know, and still trying to think of, I'm going to be a dad and need to yeah. support my wife and what's that going to look like? Um, so it was, yeah, it was tricky, but, and was this the, not to back, go back, but I had no clue about the getting slid in Alaska. So that yep. was that a, were you injured in those or no? Nope. Okay. Nope. Um, fortunately both of the avalanches, I came out pretty unscathed. Um, you know, there's not a ton of terrain traps, I guess, if you will. So a lot of those avalanche paths fan out, fortunately or unfortunately. It kind of depends on where you are. It's so different. But um, both of them, I just kind of popped up at the bottom, luckily. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, not buried. But understanding the snow and the subduction and, like, how the avalanche works. Mm-hmm. really helped like you know we always used to say it in Alaska with our pilots so we'd rather fly with someone who's crashed a few times and walked away and so <laughs> like, they know how to do it right I mean, yeah so yeah very very great so, so not as as not the same weight I guess is what I'm trying to get to as you know here not yeah i mean then throw in the layer of you're gonna be a dad mm -hmm. yeah i mean the first one was tough because theo miners who was 
our owner operator that and mentor of mine up there he as soon as i got off the ship with my first one he grabbed my hand walked me into the shop and it, it's like here pick up the phone you gotta call tori because unbeknownst to me kind of early on tori left him a note in his locker we worked together at the village and she's like if anything happens to aj in alaska i'm gonna kill you <laughs> <laughs> So I think he was partly scared to death of her more than me. But um, yeah, so I he made me call her and kind of talk to her about what happened. So that helped me process the whole thing. Yeah. But interesting scale up there for sure. And But in some ways you can mitigate it a little bit easier. Yeah. The, the hazard. And then back back to what you know where we were. How long did it take for you? I mean, I, I know you well enough to know something like that isn't going to be like. I just need to get back on the horse. You know what I mean? Like there had to be some deep thought that went into like, am I going to continue on mm -hmm. with this career? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that next winter i remember my first day guiding at the village um i was on the top of four pines and i i was shocked of how scared i was <laughs> i was like having some real in internal conversations in my head and trying to put it aside but also dealing with it like i can't just not listen to this voice in my head because mm -hmm. it's louder than it's ever been um so I wouldn't say that I started to steer away from it, but I just was a new dad at the time too. And I had seen many ski guides, many people that maybe choose, chose their career path over family. And I just knew that I was not willing to do that. So I think in the back of my head, I knew my sort of, time in Alaska was going to come to an end mm -hmm. and um, my time up there kind of got shorter and shorter just because of family and also <clears throat> it just it changed but did it change what you were doing here um not immediately no but I do not ski guide nearly as much as I used to most mm -hmm. most of my guests and folks I ski with it's just not sort of in there level of sure. interest or you know skiing has become a little more interesting i mm -hmm. guess just finding the perfect turn and and yeah <laughs> riding lifts and so yeah i, I definitely am not backcountry guiding nearly mm -hmm. as much as i ever used to and then you stopped going to alaska but then yep. right then it came around again um well i missed a few years that year i broke my legs um the year Oliver was born, Oliver was born with hip dysplasia. So we spent a lot of time back and forth at Salt That's Lake. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Yep. So didn't go that year. Um, but, you know, I think 14 or 15 was my last time up there. Okay. So, you know, 15 years off and on. It was it was a good run. Yeah. It, it, it seems like a lifetime ago, honestly. Yeah. But... Um, and then, so I, so what, what made you go get the skis? 
<laughs> I mean, I love. That's, I don't know why that's so like because maybe it was like the interaction that yeah that's, we had had, and then me left being left like, what is he doing? That's like, funny you bring that up. Um, I don't remember that conversation with you at all, but I, you know, by the time I was able to start walking kind of again, and like I was like, I have to go back and see it like, mm-hmm. because it's still it all just happened so fast and surprised me like I was not prepared and I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So I needed to go back and look at the terrain without snow on it. Hmm. Kind of wanted to find my ski. I think I had some other things up there too. Pull maybe mm-hmm. I wanted to see the tree I hit. Um, did you leave a mark? <laughs> broke it. What? Yeah. It was, um, probably a good 10, 12 inch diameter tree. Wow. It snapped in half. Yep. Wow, that's yeah. So, heavy. I mean. so yeah, I kind of parked at a friend's place up there, Fish Creek, and bushwhacked up, and it's unbelievable country up there. Like you can't even walk through it. Um, it took me forever to get up there. Sore, my legs hurt. Like, but I was just determined to see it. Found my ski, found my pole, took some pictures, looked at the terrain. I was like, this has not happened to me again. That's wild. Yeah. The tr- I mean, to break, a, to break a tree like that yeah. has to be speed. In, yeah. It was wow. going super fast. Al Forbes, who did my surgery, he kind of anticipated, he sort of made a determination that if I hadn't been wearing ski boots, that could have just ripped my foot clean off. Really? Yeah. Wow. But that's wild. That's heavy. Yeah. But it's just makes your tapestry that much richer. Yeah. More color. Absolutely. (laughs) More, more brush strokes. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, heavy. I mean, I, you know, going backwards for just a second, it seems like when you moved out here, like that's a very quick transition Yeah, from like moving here to, you know, kid from Iowa, the, the world we're talking about. With. Yeah. I, so in the mid nineties, every powder magazine cover, every photo shoot was in Thompson on Thompson's pass in Alaska, mm-hmm. this specific run called 40 and a half and the sunlight at the end of the day, it's just unbelievable. And as a 21 year old kid, it's like, I gotta go there. I, I gotta go. That's for, that's for me. And so I just started grinding through my certifications and endorsements and, um, Theo Miners, who I mentioned, who I worked for and was a mentor of mine, kind of brought me into the fold and he was guiding for Doug Coombs at the time, Valdez mm-hmm. Heliski Guides. He was his lead guide, kind of ran the operation there um, in his last couple of years before Doug sold. And then when Doug's, you know, he was, Theo would kind of always say, I'm going to bring you up to Alaska. I'm going to bring you up. I'm going to bring you up. Get your certs. Get your certs. And I was like, yes, yeah, I'm working. I'm working. And so in 2000, the village opened their gates and started to expand their guide program. Got hired to do that and just had all my pieces in place. And about that time, Doug sold Theo 
bought some property 45 mile on Thompson's Pass and said, I want you to come up. That's great. Did a lot of wood cutting and snow shoveling those first few years. I think my first year in Alaska, I got 15 hits, they call them, runs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but chopped a lot of wood, shoveled a lot of snow, fueled a lot of helicopters, and just watched and listened and learned. and The way it should sure. be, yeah. I would think. Yep. Yeah. That's... Um, it's cool. I mean, it, it you know it, it just dawned on me while we were talking about it. I mean, because yeah, we graduated lot. from school <laughs> the same year, and then all of a sudden I was like, well, what? How did that happen so quick? Yeah, it's a, a long way from the flatlands of Iowa. Well, on on that note, you know, throughout the years, it's it's funny working together. We would talk about certifications too. (laughs) How many times have we had that conversation? (laughs) But now it dawned on me when I was, you know, writing your intro and that I I don't, I made the mistake of never, you know, asking like, how how did that, I mean, I don't even know how Patty, right? It's Patty, right? Or no, sorry. Um, The certifying uh, PSIA. PSIA, sorry. Patty's Patty's Scuba. (laughs) Scuba. Um, You know, how the origins of that. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because you and I constantly talk how, how in the world of fishing is there no just standard certification for a fishing guide and we've always said well let's do it and we say it every year (laughs) so (laughs) maybe a good starting point would be you know for me to learn a little bit more about the certification process because it seems like going back and tracing that history would be one of the only ways to start Mm -hmm. our 20 year long project (laughs) for for the fishing world yeah yeah how many times have we brought it up i so I mean, PSIA is just the governing body of ski teaching in the United States. Private, um, right? Professional Ski Instructors of America. But it's not, it's the feds have nothing to do with it. No, it's its own entity, you know, yeah. just like a PGA golf professional or, or, yeah. or whatever, you know, tennis coach, ATA, whatever. Um, it's just this series of um, standards. It's a sequence of events for accumulating certs and... You know, there's basically three levels of certification. And then in the end, you can choose to become an examiner if you want to pursue another level of that. Mm -hmm. And I did that all within my first three, four. I think I became an examiner in 01 or 2000 probably. So somewhere in there. Wow. It's been. That's quick as well. Yeah, it was pretty quick. Um, I was directly benefited by the change in technology, like coming here to ski. I had no bad habits. The ski started to change, more shape, more side cut, mm-hmm. e- easier to ski for a hockey player, right? Yeah. So it, it all kind of made sense right away. So I was able to kind of work through that stuff quick. So if if you take that, what you went through, and you put that in the in the fishing guide world Mm -hmm. does that look like okay so you and i create the documents let's say here's the exam you need to take here's the qualifications you need who 
in the it seems like in the ski world, right? Someone went around and lobbied all of the resorts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I don't know the history, but I'm imagining it had to go something like that. Sure. I, I think the one thing where I always stumble with the accreditation for fishing guides is how do you assess skills, right? That's skill assessment, skill acquisition. It's pretty easy to do on skis. We look at skiing, we look at maneuvers, we watch movement patterns. You can wrap it up in an hour or two. Well, it's, you know, they're day events that we do Mm -hmm. these assessments, but you know, the place where I always just come into a complete dead end is how are we going to assess how well someone rose Pine Creek bank on the South Fork? Sure. And then what, you know, is it 10,000, 16,000? Like, what's the flow? How do you, <laughs> yeah. how do you assess like what their skill set is? And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. I, and then it's, where do you bring it? Right. And I think what actually foam is doing in Montana and bias. <laughs> yeah. Mike bias. Yep. Foam it's, stands for fishing, fishing out. outfitters association of Montana. Okay. That's right. And they are really honestly creating some curriculum for endorsement. Um, and they have even two levels of it now, which is basically like coursework, mm-hmm. like bias does an entomology. They do a hydrology thing they do. And so it's like, if you went through this, you can at least check the box that, Oh, I've attended, I've been endorsed by foam sets me apart from the other guy who hasn't done it. Mm-hmm. So ideally a, educated guest or angler that goes to Montana may very well want to seek out a foam endorsed guide Mm -hmm. because at least there's an understanding that there's been some vetting. There's been some level of further education. Sure. doesn't necessarily make them a better guy or guide than the person or fellow who hasn't, Mm -hmm. but at least they've made an effort to yeah. set themselves apart. But, and I, I think honestly, that's why the schools, the Western Rivers Guide School, for me all these years has been incredibly important. Yeah, um, absolutely. And one of the reasons I still am involved is I think we're just educating. We're, we're not saying this is the only way to do it. This is just a way we think you know, to do it safely, to enjoy it, to learn, um, some level of appreciation for the resource Mm -hmm. to your fellow user, especially during the pandemic, navigating all the people that are outside now, um, how to do it respectfully, how to do it with some integrity and hold your other fellow users accountable as well. So the school's even though it's not an endorsement or a governing body, at least is saying, Hey, I attended a week long program that I at least have a minimum skill set. I have a better understanding of the how and the why I hope I can do it safer, more respectfully. Um, and just more information that you can share with the next person. And those things have gotten out of hand. We're doing, <laughs> I'm, I remember when you came to me years ago, you're like, we're going to do three in the spring. <laughs> I, I looked at you like, uh, no, we're not. <laughs> and, 
we're doing guess <laughs> guess what we're doing next spring three yeah and a fall fall school so there's four schools and you know they've changed over the years with the the participants we get a lot of retirees now a lot of older folks people that necessarily don't have any interest in guiding mm-hmm. just want to do it safer learn to row better keep their family safe on the water um and it provides a really interesting um, dynamic yeah. with the young kids who are gung-ho to guide. And you got this older guy in the boat who has no interest. But yeah, how are you going to connect with that person on the water? How are you going to get them? To- yeah, and as a guide, you could find yourself in many situations. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. So the content is great. The staff is fantastic. Um, I think it's such a wonderful product. I'm really still very privileged to be a part of it. Yeah. And I guess we just need to figure out how to combine like foam and that. And yeah, maybe it's as simple as saying, you know, going around to different regions and saying here, here it is. Would you commit to doing this? I mean, to be honest, I mean, obviously make it professional, make a package, get it, you know, organization all set up legally and do all of that but it could just be that simple you know go to Mm -hmm. start with 10 regions Mm -hmm. and i think the buy-in is going to be the hardest part of it all and and talking to mike bias it's the same you know the conversations he's had as the ed for a couple years now with outfitters guides like but why yeah. Why? Why? Why do I need this? Well, yeah. I mean, fishing guys are <laughs> the most reluctant people to change. Yeah. In the... yeah. And, and yeah, if you're not growing, if you're not learning and you're not trying to do it better every day, then what's the point? We're doing a disservice to the resource. We're doing a disservice to our guests. Yeah. You know, we're providing a bad experience and then we lose interest, right? We lose the the guest that comes out here and just wants to go fly fishing for the day. There's lots of fishing tour companies around and I don't know that that person is going to go back to wherever home is and discuss some of the issues and concerns we have here in the West. We're in a massive drought. How do we spread like that information from a resource protection standpoint, from sustainability standpoint, like, we, that message has to get delivered through everybody that comes in our boat. And, yeah. you know, so. Well, I still think we can do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone's, we ha- I mean, something has to, I mean, the weird thing is when we sit here and talk about it, right? Like when you look at resorts, it's a fixed structure, mm-hmm. right? And we are talking about very dynamic situations compared to that, right? I mean, you have a lift, you go to the top, yeah. you go down. I'm making it simple, but um, as opposed to just the sprawl of, well, these are 10 rivers <laughs> yeah. and they're, you know, hundreds of miles. And this is this mm-hmm. one region. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm sure I could, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find some more history. Maybe we should start there because it, it would be interesting to see how the ski, right. I mean, how those, those certifications started in its infancy, not where they, we know where they are now mm-hmm. I mean, they're commonplace at every, Ski resort in America, right? So, mm-hmm. h- how did they move? How did they get over that hump? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. 
still think about it quite often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, moving on from there to um, you know Wyoming Angling Company. When I was kind of reading, looking around your website, like I love the the historical part. I I didn't know um, about the original. I'm forgetting his name right now. I made a note of it, but Dick Boyer's Rod yeah. and Reel Tackle Shop. Yeah, yeah, across from the Wart, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, that's where Paul Brune got his start when he moved here to Jackson in the early mid seventies, he came here to kind of run the newspaper and he's from a sportsman's background in Florida fished ever since he was a young boy and then started guiding for Dick Boyer. And I think as it goes, that shop saw the tourist trade being a little more interested in you know, rubber tomahawks and whatever else they wanted yeah. to sell. And so Paul bought the permit, bought the outfitting business from him and just kind of did it on his own for quite a number of years, almost 40 years, I think. Until That's he amazing. Sold. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was an original permit down in the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of fun little feather in her cap. It's one of the, it was issued by, I think it was St. Anthony. Was It wasn't even Bridger Teton National Forest then. Really? Yeah, the, the office was in St. Anthony, Caribou Targhee. Yeah, I don't have that much interest in, you know, time capsules, but I would love to <laughs> go back. I mean, just... I know. Knowing, I mean, hearing some of the stories, um, you know, it's it's been very cool to, uh, you know, see all the, the accolades Paul has been receiving. Yeah, that's been a fun even for me just to see him be recognized with his contributions and, you know, the South Fork's gift to, you know, his understanding of every lure that was ever made or whittled by some guy, some some basketball coach in Indiana that that's kind of how Paul and I first met. He's like, Oh, Fort Dodge, Iowa, home of the lazy Ike. I said, (laughs) Really? <laughs> what is the lazy Ike? It's a paddlefish kind of lure. Oh, lure? Okay. Yeah. That's and awesome. I, so that started our long relationship for sure. That first conversation. But um, yeah, it's been incredibly humbling um, to be able to inherit that business, so to speak. Um, the staff that is involved now, it's, I couldn't be luckier happier grateful you know it's it's been a fun ride yeah so far and you and you you know the south fork skiff yeah (laughs) i've watched that evolution i don't Um, know if we have the time yeah (laughs) now we need a whole couple hours for that one yeah the skiff has been it's kind of a fun identity for us as paul's company and pretty much our whole staff has one now Really? So, yep. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Then I'll be like, oh, there's one that just, you're like, yeah, I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you started me down that road. Um, but you, you, you used to. The Larry Crawford skiff. That, yeah. That was an amazing story in itself. But before I had to get rid of mine way back, I remember you being like, you, you really like this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was ignorant fully i mean i understood water i understood hydrology i 
know how to row just the sitting aspect to me initially was like what i remember rowing a south forks gift probably like in 2000 2001 um jeff miller was Mm -hmm. we were kind of working with him for our engines and accessories and jansen and i went and fished the section four on the south fork and he's like here take this boat I remember that. I remember that. (laughs) Do you really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It had to have been 2000, somewhere right in there, early 2001. Anyway. I I think it was, yeah, two or three. I remember with. Anyhow. I I just remember rowing that boat like, what in the world (laughs) is. I couldn't get it to go straight. I couldn't, like, I was like, what is the deal with this boat? So loose, so maneuverable. And. I was rowing the 16 weight forward at the time, you know, mm-hmm. big, big bow, big boat. Keeps keeps the line. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just, I felt like I was in a canoe, I think, at that time. And I guess that's probably my initial impression was like, this thing is just too small, too nimble, too whatever. Yeah. And then you showed up with one. I was like, really? But, um, yeah, it's, I've... I guess you could say that I have been a slow learner on that one. But no, I just, I love it. I love the fact that now you've got a, you know, there's a fleet of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, right, that it's coming back. I mean, it, you know, I mean, I sent you that video the other day. I mean, yeah. that, that, I don't know if that's too light, but that's like it's 260 a, pounds outfitted. It's too, it's such a great story. Is it the, is the boat. And we've talked about things are in the works with, you know, getting all that stuff documented. And, and I think, you know, in a tribute to Paul and to Ralph, Ralph needs to be mentioned for sure. But that boat was so far ahead of its time, 1984, right? Yeah. I mean, Hyde didn't even start making fiberglass boats till mid nineties. Yeah. You know, and the Koffler was kind of around then. And that was part of the impetus for getting the skiff going, but, um, out of fiberglass then, and what they did, the hull design, just this summer, I found myself laying under my trailer Mm -hmm. in in my driveway (laughs) And just staring at the hull and just, I mean, it's so genius. And the boat was supposed to be 15 feet long. It ended up being 14 and a half. I think something in that sort of mistake. Yeah. It's lightning in a bottle. You know, they just nailed it. And it's been a cool piece of history that I love chasing and pursuing and yeah and it's really cool how it intertwines with your company company i mean that is even cooler and yes we we i mean plans have slowed a little bit but there's there's interest and you know uh, i look i'm committed to running it down i mean that that it needs to be documented and i think video is probably the right platform for that yeah um because I agree with you. There's a, I don't know exactly what the story, you know, how I can't, I'm not that creative, I guess, but I do know. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way it's changed hands and the, you know, the characters too, the characters, the, the, the people involved, Tom Montgomery needs to be mentioned. And I actually have his old boat, which is one of the last boats that Paul and Ralph built Mm -hmm. in 94. Um, 
you know, you think I was weird. I was talking to Baker and Tommy in Mexico and like, you think of Montgomery's time in a South Park's gif. Mm-hmm. There can't be a person on the face of the earth that has had more time in that boat. Yeah. I mean, he had one of the original ones from 84 and then he's been rowing one ever since still guiding. Yeah. That's, remarkable 40 years call it you know 100 days a summer if not more commercially and recreationally you know six hours a day eight hours a day how many thousands of hours is that in that rower seat yeah you know so he he, you know it's funny when it comes up he definitely has some memories and opinions and and stories of how that boat has has come to be and you know, it does differ, honestly, a little bit from Paul's story and Paul's recollection of the sequence of events. And But Ralph was going to come here this September, this past September. And I was really looking forward to chatting with him, getting his side of the story. But he never ended up making it. But, yeah, there's so many voices that are attached to it. That Yeah. I just get the sense that if we take the time and put it together, something... Something will be clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, because it was so far ahead of its time, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's great to have boats for all situations. But if I was to pick one, you know, hard side boat, yeah. um, at least for me, I'm not saying it's for everyone, but for me, that's the one. Well, the, the rivers we fish here in Western Wyoming—that's completely what that boat, hundred percent, was designed for. Yeah, New Fork, Salt, Green, uh, you know, all those train car bridges that are super low they couldn't mm-hmm. get it mckinsey boat underneath them um john boats were becoming more and more popular but terrible to row mm-hmm. rafts were you know inefficient and they're just they saw a need like this is what we need to get our work done and the water we're in and this is the tool yeah it's funny i spent you know you go out you go spend a, a couple of days in a raft or someone else's boat and then you get, yeah. get back in that boat and I feel like I'm behind the wheel of a Porsche. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's it's such a different feeling and mechanically to me about like you start rowing it, you're like, ah. Oh. Well the romance of it too, when you understand the story. Like, you know, the day you and I fished this summer with Sean and like just down where we were, you're like, This is this is why this boat was made. This is why we're here. This is Yeah. You know. That's cool. It's very cool. Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, I I am going to, what, what do you, cause I do find I have an attention to detail that I've said in the past, people say I'm very peculiar about. Mm -hmm. Um, I've noticed a similar attribute that you have. What do you attribute that to? I think I've always been very, very curious about the way things work Mm -hmm. and, that includes people, right? Um, both my mom and dad, as I mentioned, were educators. And I think some lessons from my mom early on have always stuck with me. And I think I've always been one that likes to figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, I'm going to just keep trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so the teaching component of my life has been wildly um beneficial like i just 
that's what makes me tick. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the pedagogy, right, of like the art of teaching is mm-hmm. more important than the skiing, more important than the guiding. Like that stuff all kind of comes easy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to sound no, you, arrogant. But, no, you can't sound arrogant. AJ. And so, <laughs> but those connections, those relationships, the learning partnership, like how that works is just been a journey that I'm still on. Yeah. You know, I think I fail most with my family, honestly. And then the people that I'm spending the day with get like the hardest part of like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do everything I can to sort you out. Yeah. Make sure that I'm coming at it from the right angle. And then I get home and I'm like, this is how it should be. We got to do it this yeah. way. But, um, that's see been, that clean it up. <laughs> yeah. That's been, that's been a, a lesson as a parent for sure. But, um, yeah, I just love that aspect of all of it. Yeah, it's great. And it's um it's it doesn't stop. It's just been part of all of it, summer and winter. Yeah. And you know when what I realized most just recently that first year of the pandemic when we were guiding, we would have our guests drive to and from put in takeout, mm-hmm. car shuttled, no time. And I really found like that year I struggled guiding. Like, hmm. I'm like, what is it? What is it? What is it? Because you're playing catch up from the yeah. lack of the windshield. Time? Exactly. Yeah. Like you, you, that whole half hour, hour on the way to the river, even if it's people I fished with for 20 years, you're getting a sense of where they're coming from that day. What you're going to have to do to kind of put it all together. Mm-hmm. What's my plan? How do I make this happen? And then, when you just jump in the boat with them, you're like, it's so discombobulated for me. I couldn't, couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. Like I just, that was a tough summer for me. Yeah. Really. That's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So listen more, talk less, you know, those are all things that I've always taken to heart and tried to bring into my teaching and guiding and like figuring out how to put all the pieces of the puzzle together every yeah. day every day is different that's um yeah well you're <laughs> you're doing a hell of a job with it i can tell you that well I, I get lucky no uh you are you reading anything good right now um you're, you're a reader right yeah i just actually finished um Malcolm Gladwell's recent book, David and Goliath. I have not read that. Is it good? It's pretty, it's interesting. It's kind of like all of his books. He puts out these facts and kind of backs into his theories. But um, that was interesting for me, intriguing. Um, I've read a book called Ridgeline. It's about the Fetterman massacre. Hmm. It's a historical fiction, but um, really good. By the guy that did The Revenant. Michael oh Punk, yeah yeah wrote the book Revenant after I read that I went down a rabbit hole of that's when I found Jim Bridger Mountain Man like that old yeah. copy yeah that that was well that, Br- Bridger's featured quite a bit in this book it's a historical fiction but it's um what a what a character what a amazing they said he had the whole west mapped out in the back of his head yeah he could walk anywhere anytime yeah yeah <clears throat> 
I started um, just pretty pretty early into it, but have you read, um, and it was because of the prior podcast with Darren Calhoun, 1491. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah. I actually listened to that on the flight. I was flying home over the golf. I, that was a great, I loved what, um, what he had to say and come about the reservation and water rights and the, the, you know, the movie too, but you know, Tori spent a lot of time over there too working with the reservation and one of her games was about treaty rights. And so she knows it well intimately too. And talking with her and a lot going on. Yeah. Interesting. And just the little bit that I've read, it's just mind boggling how, you know, little we know about how well things might've been going for people back then and how big it was. Yeah. Um, before natural events, but never really just fascinating that we don't necessarily hear that growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, I gave you the heads up a little bit late, but that was actually <laughs> strategically. But um, who is one of the most most interesting people you've ever met and, and why? It, it, time out, pause. Like that. It's, <laughs> it's a tricky one, right? I mean, that... I know, I know this com- this conversation ends this way, and I've thought about it for some time, actually. But you know, in, in so many interesting people over the years in the boat uh, with a fly rod um, on the ski hill, astronauts, ro- you know, astronauts, doc- doctors, wow. doctors, yeah. lawyers, fighter pilots, like you know. I'd like I, to talk to someone about <laughs> space. <laughs> I think I think it's there's so many people that are of interest, right? I mean, especially if you can look at it right and come into it with an open mind. But I've always been very intrigued by character. You know, I, I think I, people who resonate with me most are the ones who have that sort of identifiable trait of like high morals, standards, work ethic, mm-hmm. um, so the farming that we discussed earlier, the, the the patriarch of that family, Bill Senior, Bill Secor, was a big part of my life, even as a child. Like, I think the way he carried himself and conducted himself with humility and, and that sort of work ethic we're talking about, he, yeah. he was incredibly influential. And I was always intrigued by that of just, you know, when I was working there on the farm those last few years, he was well into his late eighties. First one there in the morning to turn the lights on, turn the lights off at the end of the day when he left and just did it with a grace that was impressive. Yeah. Right? Like I would walk into the shop and he'd be working on something and he'd say, I better put this down before you tell me I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I mean, just that, kind of level of humility but integrity with it all too so he definitely had a big effect on my process i guess yeah like in my life so yeah well it's one of the people i'm not you yeah know, no there's i mean it's uh i mentioned it's awesome that, it's probably i mean I, I know what you're speaking to and, and there's an allure to it as well yeah and and almost like an inadequacy for me like well, why am I not like that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. hundred percent. 
and so many people in my life are, are I have admiration for that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. A lot of them. Well, as I to you, so it's it's been a, a, a fun ride, our journey together for sure. Oh, it's been amazing, and um, I've taken up quite a bit of your time already. Wow. Um, so I can't thank you enough for uh, for taking the time to do this because uh, it's amazing to me. You can know someone well um, and know them for a long time and then take the time to sit down with them in this capacity and mm-hmm. learn way more. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I'm doing it. So I love it. I think what you're doing is amazing. It's great to hear the voices and your voice. And I think what a process. Well... Thanks for coming on. Happy to do it. It Really, really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Permit to Think. My hope is this podcast offers meaningful conversations and stories from the fringe of societal norms. To find out more information about AJ, head on over to wyominganglingcompany.com and on Instagram at wyominganglingcompany. Any, uh, Anywhere else is that? Um, that's that's good enough. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, be sure to subscribe, support the podcast, leave a review, whatever you're using. Uh, for more information, head on over to the website, permittothink.com, and forward this show on to anyone who you feel might dig it. I am out. Mm-hmm.